You're listening to the teaching podcast of The Crossing Church. We exist so that the real you can have a daily encounter with the real Jesus in word and deed. For more information about our church, visit crossingparagold.com. Good morning. Uh, your scripture today is Luke 5:12 through 16. While Jesus was in one of the towns, a man came along who was covered with leprosy. When he saw Jesus, he fell with his face to the ground and begged him, Lord, if you are willing, you can make me clean. Jesus reached out his hand and touched the man. I am willing, he said, be clean. And immediately the leprosy left him. Then Jesus ordered him, don't tell anyone, but go. Show yourself to the priest and offer the sacrifices that Moses commanded for your cleansing as a testimony to them. Yet the news about him spread all the more, and so that crowds of people came to hear him and be healed of their sicknesses. But Jesus often withdrew to lonely places and prayed. This is the word of the Lord. We believe it. Let's pray. Father, we thank you so much for... Uh, given us your word, uh, which we know is not just about information. This is something you've given to us so that we know how to relate to you, to experience you um, in real, deep, and transformative ways. I thank you for each person who's here that I know you love dearly, and I pray that right now for each person that you would just, um, Father, help their mind, help their heart to focus on the words that you have for them today. And I pray that these words truly, God, would be words that, that inspire us uh, to take full advantage of the wonderful opportunity that we have to rest, to relax in your love every single day. And it's in Jesus' name I pray and ask these things. Amen. You may be seated. <clears throat> January 27th, 1956, Dr. Martin Luther King Jr. is sitting at his table in the middle of the night, and he is about to walk away from his destiny. Uh, this was still early in the civil rights movement, and so Dr. King was still widely unknown. He was actually serving as a pastor at Dexter Baptist Church. I've got a picture of it right here. My family and I had a chance to uh, go and, and tour this. I guess it's about two or three years ago. You can see Megan Barely and Nora and Wyatt there. Uh, I think Moses, my youngest, is kind of like smeagling his way up the steps. Um, but this is where Dr. King was serving at the time, and because of his open and public stance against racial segregation, there was this rising tide of death threats that he was experiencing. And as you could imagine, uh, this was making him concerned, not only for his own life, but also for the life of his family, of his wife, and at that time, his two-year-old daughter. And so imagine this. Here's King. He's sitting at the table in the middle of the night. The day before, by the way, he had been arrested for going 30 in a 25. He was put in jail. When he got out of jail, he received even more death threats. And so he's discouraged. He's scared. He's overwhelmed. He can't sleep. So he gets out of bed. He makes himself a pot of coffee. And then he just begins to sit in the quiet with God. Later in a sermon here at preached at this church building, he said this, I will never forget it. As I bow down over a cup of coffee, I begin to pray. I prayed a prayer, and I prayed out loud that night. I said, Lord, I'm down here trying to do what's right, but Lord, I must confess that I'm weak. Anybody ever feel like that? I'm faltering. I'm losing courage. And it seemed at that moment that I could hear an inner voice saying to me, Martin Luther, 
Stand up for righteousness. Stand up for justice. Stand up for truth. And lo, I will be there with you even until the end of the world. Dr. King's autobiography, he, we read about how this was a defining moment that not only shaped his life, but shaped, as we know, the life of our nation and also our world. But imagine this scenario. What if Dr. Martin Luther King Jr. had an iPhone? What if, just imagine, he sat down with his cup of coffee and rather than sitting and praying, he decided to disappear into Facebook? Or he just began to scroll through Instagram? If rather than sitting with God in the quiet, he's like, you know what, I need to work on my next TikTok video. Or I need to respond to these very important, urgent messages or emails. Or imagine maybe instead he just like pulled up Netflix or YouTube and just started getting lost in all of these different videos. If that would have happened, would we have had Dr. Martin Luther King Jr. as we know him today? Would he have been able to actually hear God's voice and be draw strength from him even in the midst of his great struggle? Now, obviously, that is a hypothetical scenario, but it's had me wrestling with this reality all week. That maybe, as John Mark Comer points out, our greatest danger that we're facing right now in a digital age is not secularism, but distraction. That, that maybe the thing that could be doing the most damage to our souls and therefore our churches and our societies is not the secularism that we see in public, but it's the screen that we carry in our pocket. The screen that, that pulls our attention away, not just from one another, but ultimately from God and onto kind of anyone or anything else. And just think about this for a moment. I mean, most of you in the room are already, if you're like me, you feel overcommitted. Your schedule is full of things that you're jumping to, right? You have event to event to event to event. Right, things that are just piling up. Like very few people, my guess in this room today is like, "Hey, I, I like need more to do." Like anybody in here want to raise your hand and like say that? Like I need more stuff in my life. Please give me something to do. Right? Like like very few of us are there. So we rarely get a moment to sit alone with God. And when we do get these moments to just breathe and to relax in His love, what do we do instead? We pull out that phone. And we watch that video and we respond to that text and we scroll through social media and we put on that podcast or we Google just whatever we can. And in doing so, guys, we are distracting ourselves from what King David said was the one thing. He said, one thing do I desire to dwell in the presence of God. And for most of us, though we are in God's presence even right now, we're not aware of that reality because we live such distracted lives. And our phones, our screens, play a massive part of this. According to the American research company D-Scout, think about this, Americans tap, swipe, or click their phones a whopping 2,670 times each day on average. And you see, the problem with this is you need to hear this today. Every time you touch your phone, your phone is touching you. It's doing something to you, which means our screens not only distract us, they disciple us. They influence us, inform us into who we do or do not become. A couple of years ago, I read a book with our staff called Faith for Exiles, and in it they shared a chart that I'll put on the screen for you. You're not going to be able to read the fine print, so let me just tell you basically what this chart is saying is this, is that professing Christians, keep in mind this is just people who say, I follow Jesus, 
professing, professing Christians between the ages of 18 to 23 spend on average 2,767 hours a year on a screen. That comes out, by the way, for you math people, to seven and a half hours a day of screen time compared to just 291 hours a year in consuming spiritual content. And yet we wonder, why is it that we have so many people in the church who claim to follow Christ and yet look so little like him? Because if we are being honest, our screens are doing a far better job of discipling us than anyone or anything else. We are, guys, whether you realize it or not, being influenced daily by the news that we read by the social media that we troll, by the videos we watch, and the thousands upon thousands of hours of content we consume. And it is in a digital age like this. I cannot think of a sermon more important or a practice more important for the life of a disciple of Jesus than what has historically been called the practice of silence and solitude, which is this practice we see not only in the life of Dr. Martin Luther King Jr., but also in the life of Jesus himself. With that, look back with me in our text, Luke chapter 5, starting in verse 12. While Jesus was in one of the towns, a man came along him who was covered in leprosy. Now, it's important to note before we move on that during Jesus' time on earth, leprosy was the worst of all of the plagues. It not only was a filthy and just, and, and just deadly disease um, that no one recovered from, but because it was wildly and rapidly spreading, it could quickly turn a beloved member of society into someone who is rejected and despised and feared. In fact, think about this. According to the Levitical law, if you had leprosy, you couldn't even go to church. If you had leprosy, you could not go into the temple, which was the place God's presence dwelt. So you couldn't have community. You couldn't be with God's people. What that means, if you were a leper, you were a complete social and spiritual outcast. And yet look what happens here in verse 12. When he saw Jesus, he fell with his face to the ground and he begged him, Lord, if you are willing, you can make me clean. So apparently he's caught wind about this renegade rabbi named Jesus who can heal him. But he's like, I don't know if he'll do it or not. Like, maybe I'm too messed up. Maybe he'll be disgusted by me. Maybe instead of experiencing compassion from him, like, he will try to condemn me or he will reject me. Like, he's like, I'm not really sure what's going to happen when I see this Jesus face to face. And maybe for some of you, like, that's where you are even this morning because of your own spiritual or emotional kind of leprosy, if you will. You think, man, like, like yeah, pastor, like, I hear about Jesus. I hear that he's loving. I hear that he's kind. I hear he's gracious and merciful. But in your mind, there's still a part of you that wonders, like if I was to lock eyes with Jesus, is it possible that rather than him looking at me with delight, he would look at me with disappointment? Is it possible because of all the sin and the dysfunction of my own life that that rather than him meet me with compassion, he would meet me with condemnation? See, that's what this man is wondering. Like, he knows Jesus can heal him, but he's not really sure how Jesus is going to respond. But still, in a great act of courage, he walks through his fear. He walks through his shame. In verse 12, he says, Lord, if you are willing, Jesus, if you want to, I know you can make me clean. I know you can take away my shame. I know you can restore my relationships. I know you can change my life. And in verse 13, look at this. Jesus reached out his hand, and he did something nobody saw coming. He touched the man. Guys, keep in mind, this is a leper. This guy has not been touched by anybody ever since the leprosy ravaged his body. Can you imagine that? 
Can you imagine having a disease like this? I remember one time a doctor thought that I had uh, a staph infection. I actually ended up being a gluten allergy, right? Go figure. But I had to quarantine for 48 hours from my family. And I'm going to tell you right now, I wasn't thinking about any of you. I wasn't thinking about how I want to be a successful pastor. I wasn't thinking about money. I wasn't thinking about any of that. All I was thinking is I want so bad just to be around my family, to feel their touch, to hug them, to love them, to kiss on them. This guy had none of that, and there was nothing anybody could do about it. This is the loneliest man you could ever imagine. Nobody's touched this guy, but in this moment, what happens? Jesus reached out his hand and touches him. The Son of God touches this man with leprosy, and it's a touch that changes the rest of his life. Verse 13, Jesus reached out his hand, he touched the man and says, I am willing. I'm willing to heal you. Why? Because, guys, this is the very reason Jesus came to earth. Later on in Luke 5, Jesus himself in this exact same chapter would say, I did not come for the healthy. I came for those who know they are sick and need a physician. Today, if there's anybody in the room who needs a touch from Jesus, that touch will come not through your impressiveness, but through your neediness. I did not come for the healthy. You feel healthy today? You feel like you got everything you need? Your life's in order? Like, don't pray for me. Pray for somebody else. I'm good. Jesus has nothing for you today. But if you're needy like this man, he will bring a touch that will change the rest of your life. I am willing, verse 13, be clean. And immediately the leprosy left him. Then in verse 14, Jesus ordered him, Don't tell anyone, but go show yourself to the priests and offer the sacrifices that Moses commanded for your cleansing as a testimony to them. So Jesus, at this point, like, what's that about? He didn't want to reveal to the public that he's the Messiah because he, he didn't want the, the publicity that would bring about. So he says, don't tell anybody what happened. Let's keep this between you and me. But go to the priest so they can see that you no longer have leprosy and you can be restored to your church and get your life back. That's what he's saying. But apparently, this was like the worst kept secret of all time. Because in verse 15, it says, yet the news about Jesus spread all the more. So the crowds and the people came to hear him and be healed of their illnesses. And then look at verse 16. This is where we'll focus the rest of our time together this morning. But Jesus often withdrew to lonely places and prayed. That phrase, lonely places, is just actually one word in the Greek. It's the Greek word eremos. And it can be translated, as we see right here, lonely place, but it can also be translated as deserted place, solitary place, or my personal favorite, the quiet place. And notice what's so amazing to me is this. Jesus was busier than any of us will ever be. He's way more important than you and I will ever be. He's way more needed by people than you and I will ever be. But he would regularly, as it says here, often take time to pull away from the crowds, from the busyness, and get alone with God in the quiet place. And can we just say today that if the perfect sinless Son of God needed to do this, that just maybe we might need to do this as well. And you see, that's where the problem comes in. Because we do not like sitting still with God in the quiet. We don't like being alone with nothing else to do to distract us from ourselves. I actually, I was reading this week, it says in one study uh, that was performed by the University of Virginia, participants were isolated in a room where they were given the option to either be alone with their thoughts for 15 minutes 
or push a button and receive an electronic shock that would allow them to get out of solitude early. According to the study, two-thirds of men and a quarter of women chose to be electronically shocked rather than to sit alone for 15 minutes. One research scientist concluded this, most people prefer to do something rather than nothing, even if that something is negative. I'd say so. And, And what is this about? Like, why do we hate sitting alone with nothing to distract us? Because when we sit alone and when we choose to follow Jesus into the quiet place, we experience what Father Thomas Keating calls the unloading of the unconscious. In other words, all of that stuff that's down in here that you can try to outrun or to stuff or to numb or to just try to ignore altogether, all of that stuff when you get in the quiet will begin to bubble up to the surface. And guys, listen, it's not going to always feel good because some of the stuff's down in there is pretty dark. There's some thoughts and feelings down there we don't want to face. Some of you have experienced trauma in your past or abuse. And at times, some of those things can begin to surface in the quiet place. You might begin to experience feelings of disappointment and hurt or frustration or bitterness or unconfessed sin. And if you hear that, and you're like, God, that sounds awful. Like, why would I ever want to do something like that voluntarily? Like, yeah, I would rather have the shock. Like, why do this? Because look right at me. All of that stuff is inside of you. It's there. And you're living with it. And some of you are exhausted because you're trying to outrun it. Or like this beach ball in the water, you're trying to like push it down, push it down, push it down. And eventually it comes out sideways and pops the people closest to you. And because that is true, the invitation from Jesus today is to follow him into the quiet place and know that when you are there with him, you can experience healing for your deepest wounds and your darkest sins. And because the devil knows this, one of his number one strategies against you is to keep you from sitting with Jesus in a quiet place. It was the great theologian and author C.S. Lewis who once said, there are two things the devil can't stand, music and silence. This is why Lewis would go on to argue that one of the devil's primary weapons for warfare is noise. I think of his book, The Screwtape Letters, and that haunting line from the senior demon Screwtape who said, we will make the whole universe a noise in the end. That's what the enemy wants to do. Noise, 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 noise. Because if he can drown out the voice of God, he drowns out the only voice that always sounds like love and always leads into life. And you see, Jesus knows this is the devil's strategy. That is why the noisier and busier things got around him, the more regularly he would pull away and get with God in a quiet place. And guys, I really believe this was the secret sauce to Jesus' power in ministry. Because when you get alone with God in the quiet place, you want to know what happens? You begin to gain a fresh reminder of who you are in Christ and what you have been called to do by God. 
you get a fresh look at, man, who I really am, my identity and my calling. If you're like, where do you see that at in the scriptures? Well, just look with me over in Mark chapter 1 for a moment. You can turn there, Mark 1, last place we'll look. But in Mark 1, the context is Jesus' popularity is beginning to grow. More and more people are looking for him and asking for his help. And listen, guys, I don't know if you're like me. I'll just admit, like, I can live for the approval of others. And so when people ask me to do something, like my first response is I want to do it because I don't want to disappoint you. Like, like sometimes I love to serve people, not because I even necessarily love people, but I love when people love me. And so I can be controlled by the opinions and, and the expectations of others, but not Jesus. And I think even when he began to feel this urge a little bit, He'd pull away into a quiet place. He knew that was the remedy. Look what happens right here in Mark 1, verse 35. It says, very early in the morning. That is, by the way, Mark's way. Uh, all Jews, just so you know, they would always get up early to spend time with God. That was Every good Jew would do that. So this is Mark's way of saying, like, he was getting up even earlier than early. Very early in the morning, while it was still dark, Jesus got up. He left the house and he went off to a solitary place. Greek word there is a ramos, which could also be translated as the lonely place or the quiet place where he prayed. Now look what happens next. This is interesting to me. Simon and his companions, that's Peter, right, went to look for Jesus. And when they found him, they exclaimed, everyone's looking for you. Notice the exclamation point. You can feel the anxiety from the crowd has now become their anxiety. People have come, where's Jesus? Where's Jesus? We need Jesus. Ah, oh, we don't know where Jesus is. We don't know. They're going to look for him finally. Like, where have you been? Everybody is looking for you. To which Jesus responds by saying, verse 38, let's go somewhere else. It's not what they expected to hear. Everyone's looking for you. Let's go somewhere else to the nearby villages so that I can preach there also this is why I have come. Now, think about this. This is so convicting to me as a pastor. Jesus has been presented with the opportunity of a lifetime to go back to Capernaum and ride the momentum of ministry. And yet, when he says, everyone is looking for you, he says, we're going to go somewhere else, which is Jesus for no, I'm not falling for that. No, we're not going to go there. I know everybody wants me there, but no, that's not what we're going to do. Why does Jesus say that? Because after spending time in the quiet place, he has now 100% clarity again of who he is and what he has been called to do, which in this moment was not to go back to Capernaum. And again, like this is convicting to me because as a pastor, I get a lot of requests. Good requests. Like, can you pray for me? Can you preach this funeral? Can you speak at this event? Can you counsel with our family? Can you do this? Can you do that? And all of those requests are good requests. But when I look here in Mark 1, I'm, I'm reminded that there's a difference between a good thing and a God thing. Is healing people in Capernaum a good thing? Yes, absolutely. You realize there was probably someone's kid that needed to be healed in Capernaum. And because Jesus didn't go there, died. Like, going to Capernaum to do healing, like, that was a good 
fame. But after spending time in quiet, Jesus realizes that God has sent him to do a different work among a different people. And so with great freedom, Jesus says, you know what, I'm going to go do this, even if I know it's going to disappoint lots of people in the process. Guys, few of us live with that kind of freedom and that kind of clarity. And that kind of courage and sense of resolve. Some of you in this room right now, you are bouncing from fame. You're like a ping pong ball. Like there's like there's no, like you're not tethered to anything. You, you change with the wind and stuff. Some of you, like you're just drifting through life. You have no idea who you are, why you're here, what you're called to do. Some of you are swept up in the thoughts and the opinions and demands of the world. And if that is where you find yourself today, listen, more than you need a therapist, more than you need to just get a stronger will, more than you need a self-help book. If you want to keep from being swept up by the demands and the distractions of the world, if you want to keep from aimlessly drifting through this life, you need to anchor yourself in the love of God. And so how do we do this? How do we do this? Well, it's through the practice of silence and solitude. Or if you grew up Baptist, the quiet time. Just finish having my quiet time with Jesus, right? Like you've heard that. And the idea of silence and solitude or a quiet time is just the practice simply of this. It's about, it's about getting alone with God in a quiet place. It's about learning to rest and relax in his love. And I would tell you, I think this is absolutely essential to every single disciple of Jesus, and this is something I would encourage you to do every single day, ideally, in the mornings. And on a practical level, this is what it looks like. Okay, I'll put some of this on the screen for you to try to help you, and then you can figure out what this looks like for you. But for me personally, what happens every single day in my life, or at least almost every single day in my life, is I will wake up and I'll grab a cup of coffee, and then I'll get comfortable. But not too comfortable, because I don't want to fall asleep. But I will find, for me right now, it's usually a leather chair in our living room, and and we'll start the fireplace, because it's cold. But as soon as it gets, you know, probably even like in the the upper 40s, like I'm going to be outside on my back deck, or I'm going to be on my front porch sitting in a chair. Okay, fairly comfortable. Once I'm there, I'm going to take a few deep breaths. And I'm going to try to center myself. I'm going to try to become present to the moment, present to myself, so that I can then become present to God. It was John Calvin who once said, with no knowledge of self, there cannot be a knowledge of God. And so I want to gain knowledge of myself. I want to notice, where am I today? Like, what am I feeling right now? Am I feeling anxious? Am I feeling sad? Am I feeling angry, lonely, shame, guilt? Like, what's going on inside of me, guys? And the reason it's so important to identify your feelings is your feelings are telling you what you desire the most. And so if you're sad, it's because you're some, there's something you have desired that has been taken from you. If you're mad, it's because there's something you desire and someone's trying to thwart, that, thwart you or something's trying to keep you from getting that thing. If you're anxious, it's because there's something you desire that you're afraid you're not going to get or something you currently have is going to be taken away from you. So when you're aware of your feelings, you become aware of your desires. And then as I just become aware of that, it takes me about three, four minutes, whatever it may be, I just invite God to come in that moment and to minister to me. And I get it. I know we got great theologians in the room today. God is omnipresent. He's everywhere. I agree. But he's not everywhere the same way. He manifests himself differently at different times in unique ways. So what I'm asking God to do specifically is, like, I know you're here. Manifest your presence among me in a unique and tangible way. And there's a, there's a, I would encourage you to do this. Find a member of the Trinity, and I know this is a mind blower, 
but God is three in one, Father, Son, Holy Spirit, and talk to one of them. Talk to Father, Son, or Holy Spirit. And this is going to be different for each of you. Some of you have really bad father wounds, and it's probably really hard for you to talk to God as a father. But maybe for some of you, like that's exactly what I relate to as God as Father. But, but what I do typically every single morning is I will just open my hands like this, and I'll just say, come Holy Spirit. Or I'll say, come Lord Jesus. And then I will read a passage of Scripture, which is the fourth thing. And for me, I love to go through Lectio 365. Problem with that is it's on my phone, which for me does not distract me. But for some of you, it may distract you. You may begin to like want to get through social media or pay attention to the text message you got or whatever it may be. And so if Lectio 365 or another Bible reading app doesn't work for you, I would encourage you to just read through a psalm or to read through just a little section of Scripture. And listen, when you read, guys, you have to get this today. You don't read primarily for information. You read for relation. Like the word of God is a word from God to you so that you can experience intimacy with him. Don't read this like a textbook. That is a huge mistake. Don't read this and try to be like, oh, what did the Greek actually mean right there? I wonder what the context of that is. Like, like read this devotionally. Read it slowly. And whenever you read it, here's just what I do. And what I would encourage you to do, just look for one little word or one little phrase that jumps out to you and then become curious about that. Why did that word jump out? Why did that phrase jump out? God, is there anything specifically that you're wanting to say to me in light of where I am today, in light of what I just read? Is there a way that you want to minister to me? Is there something you're calling me to do? And then here's the fifth thing. As you begin to process that, eventually you want to move to talking to God, to God about that. You want to pray. So prayer is just talking to God. And so what this means for me is I will just usually turn eventually my attention and I'll say, God, what I think you're saying to me today is dot, dot, dot. God, what I think I hear you saying to me today through this text is you want me to forgive myself because you've already forgiven me. What I think you're hearing me say is I need to forgive this person who hurt me that I thought I had forgiven that I've actually not forgiven. God, what I think you're saying to me today is you just want me to rest in your love. To just relax. But God, I think you're telling me to actually, you know, sometimes God, by the way, he'll tell me something very, it's a very, it's usually, it's usually this way, usually it's very general. Like, I usually just walk away a lot of times just thinking like, God, I think today you're telling me that you love me. That's the main thing you want me to know. But then there's other times I, I feel God speak to me very specifically. I literally had a moment this week where I felt like God specifically told me to take my kids to the Waffle House for breakfast. And I know that's probably weird to some of you, but we did it. It's one of the reasons my kids love when I have a quiet time with Jesus, Right? I get waffles. Sometimes it's general, sometimes it's specific. But just have that conversation with God, and whatever you feel like God is saying, sixth thing is this, spend just a couple moments in contemplation or journaling what you think God is saying. Just chew on that a little. That's what it means to meditate, by the way. Eugene Peterson says the word for meditate we see in the scripture means like chewing on a bone. Like you watch a dog chew on a bone until it eventually kind of metabolizes and gets in your system. It's kind of just kind of chewing on that word a little bit. Uh, maybe I journal thoughts or whatever. And then lastly, if you have any other requests, make those requests known to God. He's a good father who loves to give good gifts to those who ask. So it's a good time to just ask him for whatever you need. And listen, if that sounds overwhelming to you, I get it. Some of you are like, man, I've got young kids at home. Like, I'm just trying to keep my house from burning down. Like, I'm just trying to stay saved in this season. It's like, good for you. Like, if you can stay saved with little kids, awesome, well done. Like, I, you know, some of you in here, you're like, man, I, I just don't have the discipline for this. Like, I'm just so busy. I just don't know. 
to keep you from getting overwhelmed, let me just give you three quick tips when it comes to silence and solitude. Number one, start where you are, not where you aren't. I almost didn't share what I do in my quiet time because I don't want you to feel like you have to be where I am. You don't. Like, I have been doing this regularly for 12 years. Like, I, there's a lot of things I get wrong in the Christian life and a lot of areas I'm off, but one area I've been consistent has been in this area. I've been doing this for a long, long time. My kids will be able to grow up, and there's probably a lot of things to be able to say about my life, but one thing they won't be able to say is that I neglected time with Jesus in the mornings. I've been at this for a long time. And so don't try to start where I am. Start where you are. Maybe for some of you, you're like, man, I can't do this. Like, I, I, all I can do is have you sit silent with Jesus for a couple minutes. Fine, stay there. Whatever it is, just start where you are. Secondly, be kind to yourself. Be kind to yourself. Look, when you start trying to do this, you're going to feel really bad at it. And I just want to encourage you, like, this is not something for you to succeed at. Don't make it that. It's not something for you to kill or whip or check off a box. Like, some of you, you're going to try to do this, and, and, and I'm telling you what's going to happen is not only are you going to experience some attacks from the devil, but your mind is going to begin to race with all of these random thoughts that distract you from the Lord. My wife uh, recently said, you know, when I practice silence and solitude, she goes, you know what I feel like? I feel like Nacho Libre. You guys have seen that? Anybody, how many of you have seen Nacho Libre? Okay, H- half of you. Um, you remember that scene where the candle falls over. He's praying in the cathedral that God will give him the power to, to defeat that wrestler. What's his name? Uh, it doesn't matter. Ramses. Ramses. Uh, and so, like, the, the candle falls over on, and all of a sudden there's smoke, and, and he's sitting there praying, and then you just uh, you, you hear his thoughts in his head, and he goes, I smell cookies. And then he realizes he's literally on fire and he runs out of the church building like in a frantic like, you know, pace, like trying to survive. And my wife was like, that's what I feel like when I do silence and solitude. It's like, I smell cookies. And like the next thing I know, like the house is on fire, right? And listen, that's not just true for my wife. That's true for a lot of us. And it's not just true for us normal people. It's even true for the saints. Some of you remember where uh, a few years ago on my sabbatical, I went to the Subiaco Monastery. There's a picture of me with Father Jerome, who actually builds the caskets there for the monks when they die. And so, um, but this is a guy who has, think about this, he's been in a monastery for 50 years, and he prays eight hours a day for the last 50 years. And he told me, he said, Jared, he said, uh, here's what I've discovered. No matter what tree that I sit under to pray, I always notice there's monkeys jumping around above me. And I was like, well, what do you do about that? And he's like, oh. And he said, sometimes I climb up there with them. But when I realize I'm up there, I just climb back down. He's like, I don't judge my thoughts. I don't get mad at myself. I'm just like, oh, I should probably come back down now. And I return to my thought. That's a guy who's been doing this for eight hours for 50 years. And even he feels like silence and solitude can be like this. So be kind to yourself. And then. Lastly, what I would say is this, just stay with it. Stay with it. Guys, my my parents were in the first service so they could vouch for this. I, from the time I was little, I was told I needed to be on Ritalin. Like, from the time I was a kid, like, I was the most hyperactive boy you've ever been around. I still, my family here can vouch for this, I don't like to sit still. I have been told I have ADHD. 
I've been told I have OCD. I've been told I can be a workaholic. I am not naturally a person. This is my point. I am not naturally a person who just likes to sit still and be. But I can honestly say that I look forward to silence and solitude every single day. It is, I can say this with all honesty, my wife, I think can vouch for this, it's my favorite part of the day. I look forward to it, and I miss it when it's over. And it's because what I have found over time is the Bible is correct, like God's love truly is better than life. And just learning to abide in that love is life-changing. And this brings us back to what Jesus said in John 15 at the beginning of this series. This is the whole point of the Christian life. Says you want to you grow, you want to mature, you want to produce fruit, you want to become the best version of yourself possible. Jesus says in John 15, what do we do? You don't try harder to be better. He says, just learn to abide in my love. And when you do that, things will begin to change. This is why Dallas Willard once said, you will rarely find any person who has made great progress in the spiritual life who did not make regular time for solitude. Or in the words of Henry Nouwen, without solitude, it is virtually impossible to live a spiritual life. We cannot say that we take the spiritual life seriously if we do not set aside a regular time to simply be with Guys, the Christian life is not primarily about doing. It is about being. It is not primarily about rules. It is about a relationship. And as we all know, the more intimate the relationship is, the more time alone is required between those two people. You know, my wife and I got a chance to go on a date this week. I had to perform a, a, or, or officiate a, a funeral and I was gone from the family for a little while, spending time with this other family who had lost a loved one. And uh, just as a way of, uh, they knew I'd spent a lot of time away from Megan. So they were like, hey, here's some money. Take your wife on a really nice date to the 501 in Jonesboro, which we don't ever go to the 501, but it wasn't on our bill. So it's like, okay, great. And we went to the 501. We got, you know, uh, just wanted to watch the kids. And it, it was just awesome. Just being able to go eat a meal together put our phones in our pockets, and just kind of be. We didn't have anything necessarily to talk about, no agenda, but we just were with one another. And this is a practice that we've tried to implement regularly into our life, um, even more than what we did in the past. I mean, I think like we are trying now, as our kids are getting older, we're getting busier more than ever to carve out space to just be with one another. And a lot of times we go to somewhere that's like not even close to 501, right? Like, And then we're even getting to the point now where it's like if we can't go anywhere, like let's just go lock ourselves in our bedroom put on YouTube or something for the kids, let them get addicted to screen time, and let's go be alone in our bedroom, just you and me. And, and I share that just to say this, as important as that is for the health of a relationship with your spouse, it's just important, not even more important when it comes to the health of your relationship with God. God is a lover. That's the way the Bible talks about him. I think I'm going to go through Song of Solomon later this fall because it just blows my mind that the Bible talks about him as a lover. God is a lover. And he wants you to experience love. He wants you to experience intimacy. He wants you to experience life with him. But in order to do that, we have to get alone. With that, I'm going to invite the band to come forward. I want to read just this word from Ruth Haley Barton. This is from her book, An Invitation into Solitude and Silence. And she says this. 
The invitation to solitude and silence is an invitation to enter more deeply into the intimacy of a relationship with the one who waits just outside the noise and the busyness of our lives. It is an invitation to communication and communion with the one who is always present, even when our awareness has been dulled by distraction. It is an invitation to the adventure of spiritual transformation in the deepest places of our being. An adventure, an adventure that will result in greater freedom and authenticity and surrender to the God, to God, than we have yet experienced. Isn't that beautiful? The God who always waits for us outside the noise and distraction. So here's the call today, guys, and we're done. It is to lower the volume in our lives. It is, in the words of the Apostle Paul in 1 Thessalonians 4, 11, to make it our ambition to live, quote, quiet lives. To start each day following Jesus into the quiet place. And as we sit with him outside of the noise, what we will begin to discover is that he will be there, not just for me, but for you. And he will speak to you. He will comfort you. He will heal you. He will love you. With that, I'm going to invite our communion servers to go ahead and come forward. Now, I just want us to take a moment to just silence our own hearts before the Lord. And I want you to remember today, as you come and you take communion, that the only way that we can follow into the quiet place, the only way we can get into the quiet place and we can experience the presence of God is through Jesus. He's the one that leads us there. The writer of Hebrews says that it is by his blood that we are now able to approach the throne of God. We are able to enter into the presence of God with confidence and know that we have in him the mercy and the grace and the healing that we so desperately need for our trauma, for our wounds and our sins. And so today, as we come and take communion, we we remember that reality, the sacrifice that Jesus has made so that we can experience peace with God, peace within ourselves, and peace with others. And if you're here today and you're not a Christian I would just encourage you today to surrender your life to Jesus. The truth is, everybody in here is building your life on someone or something. Everybody in here is putting faith in someone or something. And I just want to ask you today, if you've not been putting your faith in Christ, like, like how's that going for you? Today, the call is to surrender your life to Jesus, to trust in his perfect life, death, and resurrection on your behalf. And if you've trusted in Jesus, even if you're not a member of this church, you're welcome to come and partake of communion. What we do is we tear off a piece of bread, which represents the perfect life of Jesus lived on your behalf. It's dipped in the juice, which represents his blood shed for you for the forgiveness of sins. We also have a self-serve section over here. It's gluten-free if that interests you. And after you take communion, if you're a part of this church, if you're a member here, in response to God's love, we give back just a portion of what God has given us. This is an act of worship. The church doesn't need your money. God doesn't need your money. More than this is about just giving for the church or for God's sake, it's for our sake. It frees us from consumerism and greed and narcissism and all the selfishness that makes life all about us. And it's just an act of of praise back to God. And so if you want to give, you see there, there's four ways to do that. You can text, you can go online, you can give in person, or you can use the app. We also have a prayer team uh, that'll be back here in the back corner. We'd love to meet with you. Or if you want... I'd be happy to pray with you up here in the front. With that, let's stand together.
Let me pray over our time. You take communion. We'll sing two more songs, and then we'll be dismissed. Father, I thank you for everyone who is here, who I know that you love dearly. God, there's no doubt in my mind what every single person is looking for here is love. To be known, to belong, to be loved, that is the deepest need in every single human heart. It's why we work. It's why we toil. It's why we smoke or drink or, or, or any of the stuff that we do. It's all ultimately a longing for deep relationship. And I just know, God, I know today there are some that are here, maybe listening online, that don't have that relationship with you. And I pray that right now, Holy Spirit, would you do this, Lord? Would you open their eyes, open their heart, open their ears, open them up to receive your love, to know there's nothing they can ever do to separate themselves from you. And I pray for others who are in here right now that, God, maybe the faith has grown a little cold, the love has grown a little cold, they would return to the first love. And they would take advantage of the wonderful opportunity that we now have in Christ to sit in your loving presence anytime that we want and to become aware of that love that we know transforms our lives. It's in Christ that I pray and I ask these things. Amen.